Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 442. Today, Liam, we've got a belter. We've got European Tour starlet Lee Slattery won twice on the main tour, twice on Challenge Tour, two wins on the Europe Pro Tour, and I've got it on a good authority of two lovely golfers that Lee is the nicest man on tour. <laughs> it must be just on tour then. Eh? No, well, listen, I, Patrick Reed and Matt Kuchar said you were a great lad. <laughs> very kind. Patrick Reed, yeah. Lee, starts from the beginning. Getting your card and getting first into golf. Yeah, well, I mean, it was quite interesting, really, because I remember turning professional at a young age, and I used to play all the sort of regional events, the Northern Order of Merit amateur tournaments, and I remember winning, you know, the goblet, the um, was it the the mixed one with the goblet and the hair, which was like a thirty-six hole. In fact, no, it was a seventy-two hole event. So it was thirty-six each day. And then I won the Mia Trophy, Hillside Pines. So it was all local events that I won. And at that point, my golf started to sort of elevate. And um, and that's when Chubby Chandler um, got hold of me. And I, I remember I was 18 years of age, nearly 19. And I signed as a professional because it was quite hard to get into the county squads at the time because the level was so high. And I just remember thinking this is probably the right decision to try and go out there and try and make money. And I look back now, it, it was the right decision. When you say sign you, was that like tap on the shoulder? Listen, <laughs> sit down, I've got this for you. Pretty much. You know, they, they always said that Chubby's contracts were, were, you know, basically written on beer match. You know, you just had a little bit of a chat, it was a handshake, and then it was done. And, um, and that's what it was. But it did give me that little bit of support I needed when I turned professional, um, you know, just, just from a funding point of view to go and play the mini tour events and... Uh, yeah, I, d I desperately needed it at the time, and and that's why I I signed as a professional. You'd imagine with Chubby being so established as well, he had all the, he could open the doors for you, as in manufacturers, yeah. sponsors, everything else as well. So it give you a good start. A absolutely, I remember signing with TaylorMade, you know, as a mini tour player, which was was a huge thing. Uh, you know, not having to pay for equipment, and uh, and also just getting to meet all the the great players as well. I remember meeting Darren Clark and Lee Westwood and getting tips off them and. 
um, you know, it was it was an eye opener, and um, you know, and it just made me feel, you know, like I belonged a little bit more, you know. So, um, it it was a really important step at that point in my life, no question. So you moved to South Africa, played on the Sun uh, Sunshine Tour. Yeah, yeah. How well, did that, that come across, and why, why South Africa? It was an interesting one because I remember, um, you know, I'd, I'd I'd been professional for a few years at that point. Um, and it hadn't really gone my way. And, you know, I'm sure a little bit later on we'll get into the story of I was a little bit poorly in, in uh, 2002, 2003. Uh, but I remember going out to South Africa in 2003 and, and I'd changed my coach at that point. So I'd, I'd started to see Alan Thompson, who was up at Heswell Golf Club, who was renowned as being one of the best coaches in the area. So it was a, it was a big decision at the time because I knew that it would, it would be a total change from the coach that I had before. who was more of a field coach and I was going down the technical route. Um, again, look back now and it was the right decision at the time. It was a big decision, the right one. He made me work extremely hard and, and I felt like going out to South Africa, playing in the sun, practicing in the sun that, that winter and having funding as well from Formby Hall, which is, you know, where I'm still attached now, but, but the members really looked after me. You know, they managed to to pull together about ten thousand pounds, so I could I could go on this trip and really practice hard, and I just found my game out there, and that was the year I, I ended up, you know, winning Euro Pro Tour, winning Challenge Tour, and and um, you know that was the big step in my life. You got struck down by illness as well, didn't you? Just well, as did, it's going all right. Was well, it? well, I did. Well, that was that was like I say, that was sort of two thousand and two into two thousand and three, um, and I remember. Uh, Chubby at the time had employed Stuart Cage to go to go around and look at the players. He had too many players at the time, and we we kind of knew that he he would have to get rid of a few. Uh, but that's how he worked at the time. He'd take on a lot of players, and then hopefully a few would come through, and then the rest would be dismissed. You know that was the way he did it. Whereas IMG would go down a different route of really looking at a player for a long period of time and making sure they were the right player, and then sign them. You know, so they might follow them for a year. Which chubby was numbers, and hopefully a few come through. So, I think that in that particular year, I think he got rid of myself, Graham Storm, uh, Peter Laurie, like, and we went on to become really good players. So, obviously, it was a bad decision on his part, but he can't keep us all on. So, so I remember the phone call that I got saying that, listen, Lee, you know, we've we've got to get rid of you, unfortunately, and I know you're a bit poorly at the minute, and so it it was a, a sad conversation. Um, but unfortunately as well, I was in a little bit of debt. Um, so I had no choice but to go and get a normal job at Next, which was a, a clothing company, and just pay off that debt. And then during that whole process, it made me rethink or evaluate, you know, the decisions in my life. And and I did, you know, and, and I got rid of the girlfriend I was with at the time. Um, I changed my coach. I got, I, I, you know, I employed a psychologist. There were lots of different things that changed and then came back the next year and obviously it was, you know, the, the coach was probably the biggest thing, but I would say that, um, you know, the hard work that I put in that following year as well, which is, is what made the dream come true. No so I, I suppose in many respects, that phone call from Chubby Chandler did you a favour in a sense. It was probably the best thing that ever happened, you know, and, and I remember, you know, after winning Challenge Tour that following year, um, it was ISM were like the first people to come back and offer me a great deal, but I just couldn't do it because I didn't want to go backwards. I didn't want to re-sign with somebody that got rid of me. And it was nothing against Chubby because I actually liked Chubby. Um, it was more that I needed a new path, you know. So when IMG came along, who were very, very picky at that particular time, 
I decided that was the company I wanted to go with. So, and it was a good decision. Just going to bring you back, 2004. <coughs> you bounced back for your illness, and obviously, which will be letting you go. You're on the Euro Pro Tour, won twice. Yep. That tour was it a good grounding for you? It absolutely was. I, th I think it made me realise something, uh, which was, you know, I had the ability to go out there and do it for one, but also it doesn't matter. A lot of these guys say that unless you get on tour, you know, you've, you've got no chance of making it as a, a tour player. But I started that year needing invites to go and play Euro Pro Tour events. So I, I honestly believe that anybody in sport, you know, if they're given a little chance, a little snippet, if they're good enough, they will come through. It's as simple as, you know, and... And my ability that year made that happen. And um, I think you can start off right at the bottom, but if your game's strong, you'll get there. Simple as. So it, it did prove that to me that year. Did you have to then organise your own travel? Like, so yeah. It gives you a good apprenticeship of what you're going to do like leading up. Obviously, you I, didn't know where you were going to be, but you, you know, need to learn all that organisation. Well, it, it was interesting because that's... Um, that was one of the years I got to know Phil Kenyon because Phil Kenyon played a little bit of Euro Pro Tour as well. And as you can imagine, he was a great putter, um, which obviously he coaches now. But I do think that travelling around with these guys, Chris Sands was another one who was a great ball striker from Heswell, who Alan Thompson used to teach at that point as well. And and just travelling with these guys and having this, you know, camaraderie and and you know, always feeling like you were one of the better players in that group. And, you know, there was me and Chris Sands seemed to play the best that year. Uh, but it was it was exciting. And if you made a cheque for £400, it was it was a lot of money then, you know. So it was like, wow, I can buy a new shirt to go out the weekend. And so, that you know, it, it was great at the time. When I look back at my career now, yeah, it was a huge stepping stone, no question about it. But it was also the most enjoyable time playing as a professional because you you're on this big elevation and when you reach the top it's obviously very hard and it's about staying there whereas whereas when you're improving at that rate and you're moving through the levels that's the most exciting part because you you feel like you're better than everybody else and you, you're going through the levels so. because you're getting success exactly you feel it you've the got confidence the is going to grow as the success grows as well absolutely so yeah. you start to feel like a proper player then you do yeah yeah you do you start enjoying it a little bit more no question and beating good players as well which yeah. Gives you even more confidence. Absolutely, absolutely. So you moved on to the Challenge Tour. Your first win come in Sweden. You won 21,000 euros. But the last day, was it a simple round of golf? <laughs> My notes are saying it's 40 mile an hour wins. It, it actually was. I mean, they actually pulled us in off the course and then they, they sent us back out about an hour later and it was even windier. They just needed to get that tournament finished and... I remember it was it was an interesting stat because it was the biggest margin to come back from to win a tournament, which was eight shots. I think Graham Storm was leading. And it was also the highest round, the highest final round, um, I think it was for 10 years on the tour, to win a tournament. So it, it, was a, it was an interesting stat. It just kind of proved how hard it was. But I remember chipping in on 17 and then birdie in the last. So I finished birdie, birdie. And then I sat in the clubhouse, and at that point, I was probably six shots behind because I'd, I'd started three hours before the leaders. And I just watched them just going one at a time, you know, coming in. What have you shot? 85, you know, 90. It was like, it was incredible. So, yeah. So, so being the challenge tour, what you've just said there, what did you shoot? It's not like you watch it off a television. 74 then, is it? I shot, which was an unbelievable score. I think it was the second lowest score of the day. I think Richard Bland, I seem to remember him shooting level par, one of the first groups out, and he finished third, I think. So. 
But yeah. there'd be no television then, so you were literally like every club member when a player walked in, what did you shoot? Like we were doing a Saturday, yeah, yeah. we've had yeah, a good round. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and when did the... you start thinking, hello, there's a chance? It was, I think, I just remember being sat there and there was still about half an hour's play left and there was a there was a scoreboard. I think it was on a computer in the clubhouse. So there were there were guys taking scores after three holes on the golf course and then reporting them back. And I'm sorry, I just remember that the the scores just kept dropping and dropping, and my name was just moving up and up and up. And I was like, you know, I could I could actually win this. And then yeah, with half an hour to go, I was leading. So I kind of knew at that point, there's no way they're going to shoot under par coming in. So I think I've won this. Must be a great feeling though, sitting there watching everybody coming back to meet you and you're elevating yourself up that leaderboard yeah but also yeah. knowing that you can't really do anything more you're just sitting there <laughs> know, waiting and praying it yeah. was yeah I mean it was I think it was the, the, you know growing up playing links golf you know I'm from Southport originally and and you know we had lots and lots of windy days and as you can imagine you know we'd, I'd be out there on the practice ground practicing in winds like that so I was used to it and it was a links golf course so um, it was just like it was written in the stars that year it seemed to yeah it seemed to be do you remember what you did with the cheque? 21,000 euros. <laughs> did you have a bit of debt then? or? Well, I think the biggest problem I had from the year before, because I was in debt, um, I couldn't get a bank account. And this this is quite a funny story. because Please I still, tell me you can't. No, no. I it, know what's coming here, don't you? Yeah, no, no. It was hilarious because um, I was still at home with my mum and dad at the time. And there was a lady that lived across the road. And she worked for NatWest Bank. And I said to her, listen, I, I need a bank account. I've started to win these tournaments and I've got all these big checks coming in. And it was it was like something off Happy Gilmore, you know, you're carrying these big <laughs> checks across. And I said, but I've got the little checks with it. I said, I just can't cash them. I said, is there any way you could set an account up for me? She said, well, your credit rating's so bad. She said, I can't really. She said, but I can give you a cash card. So bring the money in. I'll set you up this cash card and then you can just withdraw money from this cash card. So anyway, before I knew it, I've got, hundred grand in this bank account and she's like I think we can set you up a bank account now we should be all right so I got my first credit card you know having been with Chubby and having all the credit cards you know I, I had to wait two years almost to, to get another credit card so and that's where it started so back then challenge tour just for give people a bit of content you're at Sweden what would it cost you for an event but I mean I think um one of the biggest expenses is if you want to take a very experienced caddy. At that point in my life, I, I just carried my own bag, which you can do on Challenge Tour. But um, I remember employing a caddy in my last tournament of the year because I needed to to know what it what it felt like to have a caddy because I'd never had one before. So uh, without that expense, you know, flights were probably a little bit cheaper back then. We'd always find accommodation that was fairly cheap. So you you were looking at about two thousand pounds all in maximum. You know, back then, so it's still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, and you've still got to finish. I would think about twelfth or fifteenth to to make that money back at that point. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's quite expensive. You've still got to play well. Would you share then a room with another golfer or? Yeah, I, th I think I did back then. Yeah. I think um, you you never really minded back then. I think it's only when you get on the main tour and things become a little bit more serious, you start thinking about am I better on my own? So I preparation. Can, yeah, go to the gym and do all my bits, and I'm not waking this guy up, but. But I think on Challenge Tour, it's a, it's a little bit more fun. You know, the, the camaraderie is a, well, the camaraderie is a little bit better. You know, it's, um, yeah, it is more fun. Two thousand and five, then with your win, full card on tour. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? 
it was a bit of a surprise because it all came so quick, as you can imagine. You know, you, you're standing... I remember on the range in, I think it was Portugal, my first Euro Pro Tour event, and I lost in a playoff. And I remember standing on the range. I'd had an invite to get into that event as well. And I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible, you know, to be playing in a Euro Pro Tour event. And little did I know I'd have a full card at the end of the year, you know, and I, I only played 11 events on the main t on the Challenge Tour that year to actually get a card. So it came very, very quickly. And then my first event was in Hong Kong. And I remember Poulter and Montgomery next to me on the range. And it, it was an eye-opener, you know, watching Monty hit balls and not missing a shot. It was pretty incredible. I remember him hitting a four iron and they were just landing one on top of another. And Poulter wasn't striking it great, but he had a real presence about him because he's a little bit taller than you think. And, and I just felt out of my depth a little bit, I've got to be honest with you. Um, but that year was so important in learning as well because I did get some big draws off the back of being challenged tour winner you did get some great draws leading right up until the summer events. And then depending on how you'd started the year, depended on how you, your ranking was going into the second half of the year. So it, it was quite a big thing. And, and um, you know, sorry, I learned a lot. I'm just a bit cold, to be honest. I'm a bit shivery, are you? Baltic, by the way. Yeah. So <laughs> what you said there about uh, rankings, just so people know, Halfway through the season, the tour like do a re-rank, don't they? Depending on how people are playing, is that right? Yeah, I don't think there was a re-rank on Challenge Tour, but but what they did was it always seemed to happen. If you started the year really well, then you would still get great draws going into the second half of the year in the bigger events. But if you started very slow and didn't get much money up, then you seemed to drop down the rankings a bit. Mm -hmm. Although your ranking didn't change, your groups changed a little bit, so which was understandable. So just to let people know, the draws, you mean your tee-offs, don't you? you got the worst Tee-off times, yeah, yeah. And it, would you say it depends, you can have a good draw, bad draw, you know, crowd drawing you, what were you like with crowd drawing you? Did you perform more? Or was that, again, yeah, well, experience? it was experience again, because I think my first year on tour, I played with Colin Montgomery in the third round in Ireland, and at that point, he was still at his best. He was a fabulous golfer, and uh, the crowds there, I mean, in Ireland anyway, they're massive, but we're playing Carton House, which was a course that he'd designed, and uh, I, he was just brilliant, you know, he, he was so nice to be around, and... Um, I'll never forget, he hit, a, he hit a shot off about the seventh tee and he just overcut it and he went into a bunker and he turns around to his caddy and he went, that won't be there next year, <laughs> you know, because he designed the course, he could take that out. So, um, and I remember he didn't have a great day and I actually beat him by quite a few shots that day. And that gave me a bit of a lift and a bit of confidence, knowing that I could beat probably the best guy in Europe at that particular time under that pressure with those crowds. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything, you give a speech for the first time and it's very nerve-wracking. And then if you keep giving them, it becomes quite easy, doesn't it? So, And it's a bit like that when you play in front of crowds. You know, I, I block them out now, and my theory with it all is, well, if they're watching, they're not good enough to stand here and play golf. So why, why am I worried about a person's comment when they're not good enough to actually stand here and hit this shot? So no matter how bad I play, I know I'm better than them. And that's it. That was always my thought process behind it. So, Was it on the day? I mean, obviously, walking onto the first tee, I'd imagine that's where you the nerves... You know what I mean? If you're, you want to go off their good start, don't you? So you go into that do, first yeah. tee. I mean, you, I, I, do you know, the, the funny thing about it now is I used to get nervous on the first tee, but I don't anymore. And uh, I think the most nervous I ever got was playing in the Open in 2006 and trying to get the ball on the tee. But looking down the fairway and seeing everybody from Southport and people you haven't seen for 10, 15 years just stood there watching you. It was incredible. Oh, we'll get to um, that. 
So that was quite nerve-wracking. But apart from that, I've never really worried about the first tee. It's almost like, well, if I hit a bad one, I've hit a bad one off the first, that's it. You it's know. only the first hole, isn't it? Okay, it's only the team. first hole, but it's it's more coming down the stretch, trying to win a tournament when it really, really means something. I think that's that's a bigger pressure. But going on to that first tee, in theory, that first shot, if it's a good one, do you more often not go on and have a good round? or? Yes, I mean, sometimes. I mean, for me, it's all about how it felt like you know I could hit a bad shot off the first but if, let's say if I've been missing it right all week or in practice and then I get on the first and hit one a bit left I'll think oh you know I found something here and then it you know although it's not a great golf shot I still feel like I've overcome that one to the right a little bit so I don't know it just gives you a bit of a lift and might give you a little bit more confidence knowing that bad shot might not be there for the day which is um, yeah it's pretty interesting full tour on card what was it like having the chance to organise your year proper? Was that hard? Did you get a bit of help or did you just go with it full throttle yourself? You no, know, I, th- I think um, the way I planned it was, um, you know, I'd, I'd always look at a golf course and see the length of it maybe. And I always struggled in the desert because the guys, the bombers, I mean, I was never a bomber. I was kind of middle of the road, if not, you know, slightly shorter than the middle of the road as I got older uh, because the guys got longer and obviously I got a little bit older. So, uh, but I would say that, the, the desert, you look at guys like Kiros who who made three quarters of his money out in the desert. I mean, he, he oh, obviously he won the race to Dubai. Short swing, that lad. Is that the short one? swing, really fast. A bit like Tony Fee now almost now, isn't it? You know, um, But he ripped it. And and you, you tended to find that the big hitters always won out there and they made all the money out there. So um, I used to go out to, to Dubai and Qatar and Abu Dhabi at the beginning of the year and I'd just try and find my golf game a little bit. You know, I'd, I never expected to do great out there. And then, interestingly enough, one year in Qatar, coming off a terrible tournament in Abu Dhabi, I pitched up in Qatar and the winds were 30 miles per hour and it was forecast for the week. And I just went, right, okay, I've I've got a sniff here now. And I lost by two shots, finished fourth. So that was my only decent result out in the desert. Um, You know, I think outside of that, maybe a couple of top 20s here and there, but... But yeah, in all, in all the times I played out there, that was the one good result I had, and that was because it was so windy. So, so what you just said there then, was that another factor? Obviously, you'd look at the the forecast yeah. for that week, yeah. and, and that would really, regarding your chances... Yeah, I think so. There were, there were, I mean, I used to love playing at altitude as well, uh, because you'd always feel longer, and it, it would give you a bit of a lift. So Crancisier was always one of my favourite venues. Very tricky. You know, you'd have to hit it quite straight, but the ball tended to fly straighter at altitude as well, I always thought. And, and you know, it, these courses, I mean, Crancisier was one of the shortest golf courses we played all year, and it was at altitude, so... I went into that week and most people were, were done in before it even started because they couldn't gauge the distance, you know, to, to hit in. And, and I found this little formula of playing like 4% instead of 10% and just hitting little knockdown shots all week, like three-quarter shots with wedges, with even with mid-irons taking one club more and flighting it a bit lower so it didn't get up in the air as much. And I used to watch the guys come on the range, the guys that hit the ball really high, like South African guys that blast it up in the air. And I'd just look and go, they, they can't make the cut in it like that, you know, because the, it's so unpredictable how far the ball flies once you start launching it in the air. So huge advantage to me, which is why that was one of my my best sort of venues. And, you know, I always seem to find a result there. Right, I'll take you back. Switzerland. Big tournament. But also a big family event. And you missed it. I did. I did. So the the story behind that was I had a full card that year 
and and it was you know I'd I'd had a fairly decent season leading up to that, but I'd had two weeks off in big tournaments waiting for my second child to be born. So my my oldest, who's uh, my eight year old son now, um, I watched the birth of of obviously my son, and it was great. It was at a hospital. It was in a it was like a water birth. It was lovely. And I didn't want to miss the second birth because I knew how incredible it was. It's quite an emotional thing to, to watch, obviously. So I, I always said I'd be there for the birth of my children, you know. So so as it turns out, I've missed these two weeks. I can't keep missing weeks. And I've got courses that I really enjoy playing. So I've got Czech Republic and I've got Grand Cessier. And I said, listen, Faye, I've got to go. Now, bear in mind, our boy came two weeks early. And now we're two weeks, almost two weeks past the birth date of our young girl so at some point she's going to get induced anyway but I just can't miss these tournaments so so I, I, I arrive in Czech Republic thinking oh, I've made a terrible decision here and I remember shooting a good school the first round being interviewed and I'm telling this story about you know the birth of my, my girl and I want to be there for it but I'm just hoping she holds on for a couple more weeks and I finished second that week should have won the tournament to be honest but I finished second so because I was thinking about other things, it obviously relaxed me. I played well. So now I fly to Crontessier. I've been telling Faye. I mean, this is quite funny. So I've been telling Faye all week, go and have a curry. Because apparently if you get your digestion going in that, you, you know, you might give birth quicker. So I end up having a curry on the Tuesday night. And I'm sat in the curry house at about half past six. And I get a phone call off her mum. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a bit odd. So she's gone into labour. So I'm sat there having a curry, telling her to have a curry. And she's gone into labour. So I run back to the apartment I'm in. Luckily, they had really good Wi-Fi. So I sit there, pour myself a glass of red wine. I mean, I don't usually drink on tour, but this, this instance, I think, felt like I needed it. So I'm now watching the birth at home. And she had the baby so quick. It was incredible because they were filling up the pool. She was going to have another water birth because it went so well the first time. And the reason we, had a, we were having a home birth was because it went so well the first time. And she was just incredible. And anyway, she had this baby within like the hour. I'm in tears. It was fantastic watching it. So then all this has happened. I'm glad her mum was there because her mum's obviously a nurse because she works at, you know, the hospice. And so um, so I'm kind of glad she was there instead of me because I felt like it helped her a little bit more, you know. So so anyway, so I finished that day and everyone's congratulating me. You know, my manager was there that week. And then the next day, go out, shoot 74 around one of my favourite golf courses on the planet, Grand Cessier. So I'm thinking, it's obviously in my head. It's got to me, this. So the tournament director, um, Zamora, um, he's a really nice guy, but he's he, he was actually there for my two wins. He was tournament director of two wins. So we, we had quite a close bond, you know, and he's there that week, and he said, listen, Lee, if you need to go home, I'm quite happy for you to pull out of this tournament and just go. He said, because obviously your head's not in it, and... And I said, well, to be honest, I can't get a flight home till nine o'clock tomorrow anyway, and I'm playing early, so I'll play tomorrow, see how we go. And, um, and that was it. So I shoot 62. <laughs> I had a great score. End up winning, I finished sixth in the tournament, which was another great week. Ended up winning low round of the week, which got me a lovely Amiga watch, which was lovely. But now I'm thinking, I can't go home with an Amiga watch and say to them, I said, look, buy one. You know, I missed the birth, but look, I've got a lovely watch. So I ended up going to buy her a watch at Amiga as well, a lovely Amiga watch, um, like a pink face on it. So it reminded her of, like, you know, a baby girl. And 
Um, so I got home and it was it was just a lovely feeling because you've come off the back of two really nice weeks. You know, we've both got a watch and we've got this beautiful baby girl, very healthy, just there in front of us. And it was, yeah, it's an incredible story. And apparently it made the back page of the New York Times or something somebody yeah. said because people were wondering whether this baby's been born or not. So, yeah, it was a lovely story. What? It was fabulous because every single day... I'd be down there chipping and I, I knew that it was firm and I knew that it was going to be hard to hit greens that week so the short game had to be spot on. The one thing that impressed me the most, I'll never forget it, was I'd go out and play every single day the week prior and Mickelson would be practicing around one green for at least two hours, you know, sometimes four hours. So he, he would, he'd come down every single day the week before and just be chipping around greens and he'd hit a few shots obviously into holes and then he'd stop and then that was it for a couple of hours. And um, and I just used to watch him and he was hitting these chip and runs, two bounces and then spinning them back. And I, I just watched him thinking, wow, you know, this guy's incredible. And um, But it made me go out there and kind of do the same, really. And, um, and it was an open championship that I wouldn't say I hit the ball great, um, but my short game was fantastic and I putted well and obviously had a good week off the back of it, so... It's the year Tiger won it. We basically one driver did it one in the week. One driver, yeah. How many drivers did you hit? <laughs> I hit driver everywhere because because there was no rough. So I played the course as short as possible, thinking, well, okay, I'm not going to be able to get at some pins, and my game, I didn't feel like it was in a strong enough place to be able to play the way Tiger did, which was position it to get a better angle in and. And, uh, and plus he was struggling with his driving a little bit at the time and, and I really wasn't, you know, I, I felt like it was the strongest club in my bag. And, um, you know, the way he played the course that week was absolutely incredible. And uh, there's no doubt about it, you know, leaving four irons into holes I was hitting wedges into. Uh, but he just knew what he was doing. You know, he was, he was that good, unfortunately. Do you remember your week? Who did you play with? I played with, the first two rounds I played with Vaughan Taylor who was Ryder Cup that year, and Shiv Kapoor, who had won the Asian Tour Order of Merit that year as well. And I remember Vaughan Taylor was a fabulous putter. He held everything. And I think he made the cut on the number. I think Shiv just missed. He missed by a couple. Um, but I, I just remember that Vaughan Taylor, he really struggled to hit off them fairways because they were so tight. They were burnt out uh, because they'd had so much sun. And he just couldn't get that strike. It always seemed like he was thinning it, you know. And uh, he was getting frustrated, you could tell. And for me, it was just another day in the office because I'd grown up on that. So um, it was very interesting. I, I, I'm trying to think who I played with in the third round. Um, I think I played with... I missed Tom Watson by one. Oh. And I remember playing with a young kid. He was an amateur. And... He thought he'd missed Tom Watson by one as well, and and I just said he was disappointed, you know. And he got so on you the both first. Were. <laughs> we, well, well, I, I I wouldn't say I was disappointed because I just thought, okay, I'm playing in the open, that's good enough for me. Um, but this young lad was really disappointed, and I remember him telling me a few holes, and he said I could have been playing with Tom Watson today, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's one of them things, isn't it? And and that was it really. Um, I actually can't remember who I played with in the last round. Um, but it was, it was just, it, it was so much fun. I mean, it was just the pressure. And once you've hit your first tee shot and you've played the first hole, it was like everything just relaxed and then you just got on with it. And it was, it was magnificent. It a good year, 2006, wasn't it? Some good results, but we're going to go on to 2007. Yeah. Which, you lost your card. 
by 77 euros. That's right. That, that was that year, 2007. That I always get mixed up 2007 or 8. Um, yeah, it, it did. It did. And again, great little story behind that as well. So we played the last event of the year was at Pula Golf Club which was in Spain and it was a horrible little golf course. It was fiddly. It was always a bit breezy, which should have played in my favour, but it was a really fiddly golf course, a lot of water on it. And it was a horrible course to be playing your final event on because you could actually play well and get a bit unlucky and miss the cup. So, so I, I didn't play well and I missed the cup. But Yarmo Sandlin was the only guy that could affect whether I kept my card or lost my card. And I'm watching him on the last hole in the second round and he's hit too much club he's hit like a hybrid I mean most guys were hitting five or six signs so he's hit this thing over the back of the green and it's dead and he needs par to make the cut so I'm thinking I'm okay you know I'm going to be celebrating soon and he's hit the most incredible chip he's, he's like put a bit of spin on it pitches it short the green checks it up a bit and he gets it to six feet which was incredible stopped it just going down the tier and he hold it so we made the cuts, but I'm still thinking to myself, well, he's got to finish 29th tied to knock me out. So that was it. We'd worked it all out, and that was the number. So anyways, he's got, I think, six holes to go in the last round, and I'm just sat in an English bar just down the road, and I'm kind of watching it live and looking at the scores on my phone, and and he's he's around that position, you know, and he's, anyways, he, I think he's lying about 32nd, and he finishes his round and he's 30 seconds. So I'm thinking I've kept my card. They got one score wrong all day on the live scoring and it was his score. He'd birdied a short par four and they had him down as a par. So the score's now changed and he's now 29th tied with two others, which is why I missed my card. It was that tight. So he had to finish 29th tight with two others. He finished 29th tight with two, with two others. But the other story that came from it was he was playing with, he wouldn't have known this, his, his pal, because everything was so tight, but he was playing with a guy called Peter Gustafsson, who was a really good friend of his at the time. And he triple bogeyed the last hole, which was the ninth, because they started on the 10th. And he went from, I'm going to say 15th, to outside where he finished. And that was the difference. So if he'd have double bogeyed that hole, I'd have kept my card. It was literally that tight. 77 euros, what? So 77 euros, it's a yeah. Isn't it, it's like, it's nothing, is it? I know, I know, but it's... Did you um, kick yourself thinking in the year, I should have done this, should have done that, or did you just dush yourself down? Yeah, well, uh, there was a, a little backhanded put in Russia, which, you know, I never stopped thinking about, you know, because... Um, Talk us through this. Well, I'm on the 18th hole in the... I, think, I don't think it was the final round, I think it was the third round, and I'm not having a great day, and, um, you know, and I've putting it up to a foot on the last hole and I've just gone to tap it in and anyway I've missed it so tap it in think nothing of it when you look back at the end of the year that was the difference that that's a grand that isn't it? it's going to be isn't it? It, it was about yeah just over a thousand pound it cost me because I think I played okay the last round I shot like level par but it cost me plenty enough to have kept my card so did you ever yeah. do it again? never lesson learned always, Less, something, to, always yeah. something to play for line the six inch pops up yeah. now yeah no question. so you lost your card you've already said you regretted your back end put but they say bounce back ability on minerals. You went to tour school. Just tell people what tour school is if they don't know. It's, it is a grind, isn't it? It's probably, yeah, it's probably the worst feeling of pressure. I think, it, it, not myself, like I didn't feel like I was under a huge amount of pressure because I, I knew that I'd, I'd still have a rank in the following year to get me into, again, 15, 20 tournaments. So it wasn't, 
it wasn't the end of my career at that point, um, you know, but the guys that have come through first stage or second stage and they're at final stage and they're, they're trying to start their tour careers off, the pressure they're under is just immense, you know, and I, I went into it kind of happy-go-larry, really. Is it um, six rounds then? Six or? rounds of golf, yeah. Just In pace yourself. Yeah, I mean, what, what I try and do at, um, at tour school, uh, if I get to, through to the final stage, is as little as possible. Just play your golf, you know, because it... it it zaps you. It takes so much out of you. The rounds are five, six hours. It takes forever, and um, and you, you can feel the pressure amongst the players. There's no question about it. It's it's a horrible way to try and get your card. I would suggest challenge tour route is probably better. But you did it, didn't you? I did do it, and I remember. Did I shoot a 64? I think in the fifth round. I'm gonna was it? I think it was the fifth round, and that pretty much secured it because I knew I could go out and shoot 80 the last day and still get a card. So. At that point, I, I remember coming out of the scorer's hut and I'm really happy and a reporter comes up to me and he just said, so Lee, you missed your card by 77 euros, tell me about that. And I just went, no. I said, I can't believe, I've just shot 64 and you want to ask me about that 77 euros. I said, is that not finished with yet? And, and walked off, you know, and uh, it's probably the nastiest I've ever made in my life, but it was it was frustrating, you know. Well, you'd want to celebrate. They'd want to drag you down. Well, absolutely. That That's what it felt like, you know. And I was lucky because I had my manager there at the time, uh, Brendan Taylor, who still manages me now. And, and he was straight up to him and he just said, you cannot ask him questions like that. Ask him about his 64 and how he feels about, you know, hopefully getting his card back tomorrow, you know, and then he'll give you a nice interview. So it was, it was the wrong question at the wrong time. Was he young? Um, I think so. Um, probably middle aged, I would say. I don't, I don't think he was too young. He was a, you know, he was a he journalist. Knew what he, was doing. he knew what he was doing exactly. Yeah. There's bigger headlines than failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There you know is, isn't there? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And the prey on that. Yeah, very true. So fast forward, 2011. Your first win, Madrid Masters. I'd say leading up to that week, did you feel like a win were coming? Absolutely not. Uh, I don't know if you saw my stats leading up to that week, but they weren't very good. Um, and, I, you know, I was under a lot of pressure that year. There was no question about it because I hadn't played well all year. You know, I think I'd come off the back of maybe six or seven missed cuts. And, um, and I remember the week prior to that, I'd had a week off um, because I knew that I'd literally had a handful of tournaments left that year. In fact, I might have only had three tournaments left that year. And I still needed to make at least €100,000 to keep my card. Um, so I'm thinking, I, I've no idea where this result's going to come from. And I'd seen my coach that whole week, you know, to, to the extent where my hands were actually really sore when I, when I arrived in Madrid. And we'd, we'd just worked on shallowing the club all week. I remember it really well, you know, because it was down here at Formby Hall. Anyway, I arrived at the golf course and... I got on the range and I was shanking it. I was, I mean, you name it, I was hitting every shot in the bag. And I was quite, quite depressed because I just thought, this is obviously not going to be the week and all that hard work hasn't really paid off. But I kind of knew that the, the things we'd worked on the, the previous week on the range were, were definitely the way I needed to go. I needed to find a way of just shallowing that shaft at some point in the backswing. So I stepped back. And I remember Liam Bond, you probably know Liam Bond, he's a, he's a funny fellow, he played on tour for a few years, he's, he's from Wales, and, and he said, are you okay, Slats? Because he could see that I was a little bit down, and he'd watch me hit these shank shots, you know, and, um, and I said, not really. I said, I'm going to go to the players' lounge and just have a little bit of a thing. So I remember walking in there, and there was nobody in there, so I sat down, had a coffee, 
And at that point, Rory was, was breaking through. He was playing some fabulous golf. So I managed to get his swing, you know, down the line in front and, and studied it. And the one thing I noticed in his swing was how when he took the club away, his hands kind of worked on a straighter line. Mine were working in a little bit. And then he, he had the club a lot shallower in, in his sort of first move into the top of the backswing. His club was way more shallower than mine. Mine was a little bit too steep. And then I was shallowing it on the way down. And he was obviously keeping it quite shallow throughout the whole swing. So I thought, I'll give that a go. So I went back on the range and I couldn't believe it. I was flushing it. So all the work I'd done the previous week was obviously paying off as well. But I'd found a way of, of managing it better. It was the only way to, to sort of say it. And, and then, you know, went out in the tournament, missed four greens in regulation. You know, couldn't have hit the ball any better, really. Um, so again, it was it was a bit of a freak moment, but it was the right thing to do at that time. It just goes to show fine margins, isn't it? It's so you go out margins. there, you're struggling one minute, little tweak, and all of a sudden tweak, you're flying. Yeah. You, you, you're never that far away. That's that's the one thing. But it's it's the intensity you need to to stay. I mean, my coach always says it's like when you look at a tree and you're coming, you're walking down a tree. And obviously you're branching off all the time because you know you're never going to play great golf all the time. But it's how far along them branches you you sort of come off that tree before you get back onto the main bit, you know, which is where you play well. So you know his job, following me around on tour for years like he did, would be to keep me in the middle of that tree, you know, and stop me branching off too much before, you know, because the more you branch off, the harder it is to get back. Obviously, so that was his sort of analogy on it all, and and I think it's true. Yeah. So last round, two shot lead, starts off with boggy boggy. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing was, I don't think I was nervous because in, in my own head, I'm thinking, you know, a good result this week definitely takes the pressure off, you know. And, and at that point, I'm thinking, well, worst case scenario, you know, I'd finish 10th, you know, because it, I think there was quite a bit of a gap, you know, from sort of the leaders up to 10th place. And I'm thinking that'd be a nice check and then it gives me a chance to go into the next week. So I'm trying to take pressure off myself, play it down a little bit. You've got the world number one, Luke Donald's right in contention. And I think he took an early lead as well. And um, yeah, and it was just like, I just totally relaxed and just started to play golf. And, well, you must have done, because yeah, you've got four it. birdies in five balls then. Yeah, yeah. And you get to the 18th. Yeah, that was an interesting hole, yeah. Do you remember it? I, re I remember it really well for many reasons because um, the, the mistake I made was I, I'm walking was it a par 4 or a par 5 it was five? a par 5 and I had water all down the right hand side and all week I'd hit a 3 wood off the tee which brings the water into play which was about 270 off the tee but because you're in Madrid you're, it's a little bit of altitude which I think again kind of helped in the week because the ball felt like it was going so far and I remember I stood on the tee and thought I'm, it's a 3 shotter you know I've been whacking it on the green all week but it's a 3 shotter so I hit an iron and I absolutely flushed this two iron and almost reached where the water was, but I was on the fairway. And then I had a, it was a, it was a tricky yardage, but I remember the camera coming up to me to the right hand side as I'm, I'm sort of walking down towards where I've hit this two iron. And they just said, would you like to say anything to the camera, Lee? And I just said, oh, mum, dad, you know, this is for you. But, and that was, the, that was the biggest mistake I made. So the camera people asked that? Yeah. On the tee, was there a scoreboard? Did you know where you were? 
I did, I did. And I knew that the, my nearest competitor I was playing with, and he'd, he'd hit it left off the tee, so there was no way he could go, go for the green in two. What, how many in front was he? Or were you still then? I was three. three so you had three front. shots to play with in your head? Yeah, yeah. But they just broke your focus. They broke my focus, and I got emotional because it was, you know, you, you've got to get emotional in these situations because you know they're all going to be watching at home and hoping you get your first win. It's your dream, isn't it, you know? So, um, yeah, that was the biggest mistake I made, no question. So what happened? Uh, well, then, I, you know, I, I remember speaking to my caddy, Pete, and, um, and I said, you know, what's that bunker? And he said, it's, it's about 170 to fly that bunker. You know, an eight time that week was going 175. So in my head, it was the wrong decision to hit that club because in my head, I'm going, well, I can hit eight time over that bunker because it's been flying 175 this week. Um, instead of thinking, well, if I slightly miss hit this, it's not going to carry that bunker, which is the only place you can't really hit it, you know. Um, when I look back now, it, it was a wedge, wedge, no question. You know, I could have hit a wedge down there 140 and had 140 in, and that would have been it. Uh, but I decided to hit what I thought was the right shot, get it over that bunker, leave a sandwich in, make it as easy as possible. So I, I just, you can't really see it on the coverage, but I did thin it a little bit so it came out a bit low and it bounced into that bunker. And um, yeah, which wouldn't have been a bad place apart from the fact I had a bad line, I was on the downslope. So all of a sudden at this point, I, I know that the commentators, they told me after, are saying just splash it out, you know, just get it out and then chip it on and two put and you've won, you know. So I, I'm obviously not thinking about I'm thinking about, well, if I can get it on the green, then I can, you know, three put it and I can still win, you know. So that was going through my head and every decision felt a bit rushed. But then what I did after that, I was really proud of because I've, I've duffed it, but it's also come out a little bit right and it's gone into the corner of the water. I mean, it was a foot off carrying and getting on the green, so it was a bit it unlucky. Went in the water. So it's gone in the water. So now I'm thinking, okay, now I've, I know where to drop it. And Andy McPhee, who's a referee, um, I've walked over to him and said, listen, Andy, uh, where do I drop this? And I know it's two club lengths from point of entry. And, and he just said, you should know this, Lee. And I said, well, I do. I said, but I just need to give myself some time here. So he was like, okay. So he, he took me through it and, you know, I, I took the right drop. And it, I must have taken 10 minutes to play my next shot because I knew I had to sort my head out because if I just hit it, I'd probably take through the back or sportsmanship for yourself just to sort yourself out. You I knew what you needed. I, I knew what I needed. You know, like this this guy's thirty foot away putting for birdie. So I'm thinking, well, you know, that's a one in ten put probably in this circumstance. So, you know, I I know that if I can get it on this back ledge, it was a horrible pin as well on the back left of the green. And it and it was firm and fast as well. I remember that. So I'm thinking to myself, get it on that back ledge, I've won it because I can probably two put and win this. So, um, so as it turns out, yeah, I take all my time and then hit a lovely chip and run, just get it on that top ledge. So I've got about 15 feet and he's left his putt like literally six inches short in the jaws. So he almost hold it, which would have meant I'd have had to hold this putt. So I remember hitting this putt from 15 feet and I thought I'd left it short and it was the perfect lag. And he just kept going and going and going and it went like nearly three feet past. So now I'm still <laughs> thinking... What am I doing? Now, not a lot of people know. I've not told this to anybody, really. Uh, obviously, my close friends and family know this, but over that putt, the, the two and a half, three footer that I had, I shut my eyes because I knew that if I, if I looked at that putt at that particular time, there was no way I was holding it because my head's gone. It's all over the place. And um, 
So I just shut my eyes and hit the port, and he went right in the middle. When you look at it on the TV, it looks like, you know, Seve in his prime, just tapping it in, you know. So you won on the European tour with putting your eyes shut? Just on that last putt, yeah, yeah. It was the only way I could get it in, I think, at that point. So I don't yeah. want to sound horrible here, but you've gone in the water. Did Van der Velde come into your... Thought then thinking, well, he cocked up. No, no. do, do you know, you don't think about anything like that. You just, you, you're thinking about how can I control my emotions? That's that's the biggest thing. And and speaking to other guys, I've, I, I remember speaking to Mark Mooland, who had won on tour once, and I, I said, what was it like, you know, coming down the stretch? And he said, I've got a chip, I've got to chip it on to this green. And I'm thinking, don't shank it. And I'm like, well, you know, what a thought to have. You know, you're leading the tournament and you know you've got to chip it on in two put. And he's thinking, oh, don't shank this. That's the worst thing you can do, you know. And I, I think a lot of time, I think if you, by taking pressure off and just thinking about the worst case scenario, I think that does help. You know, I, I, I genuinely do. I think you can be overconfident, I think, when the pressure's on. Um, so I just think like, yeah, I mean, you know, even, even as a kid, I, I, I used to find a way of thinking, well, you know, at the goblet at, at Birkdale, I remember being on the last hole and I, I knew that. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I needed to up and down it on the last out of the bunker to win the tournament. And and I'm in this bunker and it's not a great line. I'm thinking, oh, if I thin it into the clubhouse, I can't win. You know, so the first thing that came into my head was knifing it into the clubhouse. And then I thought, well, that's worst case. Can't be any worse than that. So let's just play a nice shot now. And it just takes that pressure off and that edge off. And So you before you take the shots, you're thinking back to experiences you've had before. Yeah. Similar and thinking, yeah. well, worst scenario, like you said, I thin it. I'll take you back to the second, your second shot, where you you said eight iron had been flying, and it, and, and the bunker's obviously in play. Yeah, yeah. What did your caddy say to you? Well, an interesting thing. I mean, Pete is such a lovely bloke, and and like you know, we're still friends now. And we go out there, but one of the reasons. You know, I, I couldn't get it out of my head. One of the reasons we ended up splitting up or ended up getting rid of him because we'd been together for like three years. And Pete was, he was such a well-organised human being. Like, he, you know, you'd get there on a, a Monday or a Tuesday, he'd have everything sorted. You know, he'd even save you money on flights during the year. He'd find deals. And he was just a very organised person, which I loved. And then being out on the golf course... I made all the decisions, so he didn't make many decisions. And it made me realise that all these tournament wins I've had on Challenge Tour, Euro Pro, and even growing up as a junior, I never had a caddy. So I'm quite capable of winning on my own. And the caddy I had prior to that, Big Stevie, was a fabulous caddy. You know, never got a club wrong. But 
he played the game differently to how I played it in his head, you know. Right. So I, I struggled sometimes. I wanted to get the driver out on a tough hole and he'd be like, no, it's a two iron. And then you'd hit the two iron frustrated because you wanted to hit the driver. So he had too much to say. So when I got rid of him, it sounds terrible, get rid of him because he's a lovely bloke, um, and took on Pete, it, it was the opposite. And then that made me realise that I needed something in the middle because coming down that stretch and asking for advice and not getting it when your head's all over the shop, that's when you need a good caddy. You needed somebody there to say, no, it's a wedge. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, I say it to all the young guys out on tour, you know, they always go, is, is a good experienced caddy the right way to go? I said, okay, when you first go out on tour, get a really good experienced caddy. And more for the fact that you'll, you'll get to know people because they know everybody and you'll play practice rounds with better players. And so that's why I would do it. I said, not for your golf, you play your own golf. I said, and then as you get better, um, you, just, you can take a mate out, you can do anything you like. I said, because you've learned and you've, you're doing all the right things. I said, and then when you become world-class and you start winning tournaments, then you need the experience caddy again because you're going to be under a lot of pressure a lot of times. I said, and you've got to deal with the media and so you need a proper caddy then. I said, the middle bit, you don't really need anybody. It's it's an interesting way of looking at it, but that's just in 19 years of being on tour, that's the way it's been with me, no question. What did you do with the winnings? Did you treat yourself? <laughs> I'm trying to think what I did. What did the um, wife spend it? No, no, I, was, I wasn't. Were you married then? I, was, I don't think I was married then. Uh, would I have been? No, not quite, not quite. But... Um, I don't. I don't think we did actually did that much. I think I went home and they threw a bit of a party for me and um, just enjoyed that and you know and then just travelled on to the next week. And I think I remember playing world events and everything off the back of that because Luke Donald played that week. The world ranking points were so high that it got me into HSBC. It got me into Bridgestone, which I obviously played well in. And and um, so it, yeah, it was it was a massive turning point in my life. Obviously that that was. Let's huge. go back to the Bridgestone. I think I might be right there. You had a little Twitter spat, didn't you? You were telling me the hillside. <laughs> it, well, it, yeah, it was interesting because it was the top... It was supposed to be the top players in the world playing that event. So if you'd won a tournament on the PGA Tour or, you know, you'd won one of the bigger events on the, the European Tour, you would get into this event. So, you know, I'd say nine times out of ten, it would be pretty much top 100 in the world. And then you would get the guy that had won the Dimension Data would get an automatic spot in South Africa as well. But that was always like the only spot. And then I pitch up and I'm probably 150 in the world. And I can remember, was it Brandel Chamberlain? Yeah. Um, he came, you know, social media, internet, Twitter, whatever it was. And and he he just said, how is this Lee Slattery playing in this tournament? We've got US PGA Tour winners that aren't in this tournament. And he's won the Madrid Open, 1 million euro event. But little did he know there were eight Ryder Cup players playing in that tournament and the world number one. So that's what he, he hadn't done his homework enough on, on that particular point. And, and then, you know, the media back in Europe then gave it to him and it became a little bit of a tiff. And then I did, you know, what you I needed your to belly do. Up. It did, yeah, it did. You know, and, and went out and shot 65 the first round, which um, it was lying second, I think. I think it was only Jim Fiorick who shot 63, was ahead of me. And, um, you know, it just made me feel great, you know. Like, I belong there, you know. So what did you, what did you finish that? I finished eighth, same score as Tiger. Love it. No, but what I am going to say yeah. is, you finished eighth because it yeah. was a big event. Did you get more prize money than winning the Madrid 
I, I didn't, I didn't, not quite, but it was close. I was a little bit shocked when the message came through and it was like 120,000 you know, US dollars for finishing tied eighth. It was incredible. You know, obviously the money nowadays is even bigger, you know, again, but uh, I think I won 166 for Madrid and I won $128,000 for that. I think the world ranking points were quite similar. I remember that, you know, I, I did make more in Madrid, but uh, but I did pick up quite a few and I think I got close to about 100 in the world at that point. Did you reply to Brandon or Brendan, whatever he is called? I, I didn't, and and the main reason being is I quite I quite like him on the social. He's he's one of these guys I do listen to, and he he makes a lot of sense. And um, you know I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, but you kind of need that a little bit in sport as well. So I just thought it's too small a thing to have to deal with. He really, does kind of pick and choose his battles, doesn't he? He, he, he does. He's yeah. had a go at yeah. right few people. Absolutely, big, big name players. I think it, it probably keeps him relevant as well. Big time, yeah. You know, and, and we all know that, that by being American, you want the USPGA Tour to be the biggest tour and everything else. And I know with the live coming in, he's had, you know, some spats about that. But I think a guy coming from Europe, who's maybe not a top 50 player in the world, I think going to that live tour is probably a, a good idea in some ways financially because it's not as easy for us to, to get in. I'm going to fast forward again. Yep. The next win, let's keep this happy. Of all places, Russia. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. I've had to hide that trophy recently, yeah. <laughs> yeah, been quite funny. Going into the week again, did you feel good? I mean, I don't know what the course is like in Russia or anything. Do you, do you know, I, I actually did. I did feel good. I'd worked so hard that year because the previous year I'd lost my card again. That's and this right. time I hadn't got it back at the school. So I, I knew that year that I'd, I needed some invites, which I got. And I'll never forget, I got an invite in the Irish Open and it was it was through my manager's dad, who's Dennis Taylor, the snooker player. He was very good friends with the Dubai duty-free people because they'd sponsored the snooker for so many years. And there was one invite, I was trying to get it through the tour and they just wouldn't give it me. They were looking for a different name. And so we had to go in, you yeah, know, back door. the back door. And, um, and Dennis got me this invite. And it was great. And so I pitched up at the Irish Open. And although I only finished about 28th, I played well that week. And then I managed to get into Sweden the week after off my ranking and finished seventh. And so there was a little bit of form going into that. And I could see my game trending. It was going in the right direction. And I'd worked so hard that year, like ridiculously hard on my game and my fitness and everything else that I kind of knew something was going to happen. It was, it was a strange feeling. And then... The, the funny thing about that week was I played with the, the main sponsor of the event. It was a bank, and I played with his wife in the Pro-Am. And, you know, she was a, a lovely lady. And I went to the back tee. She was off the ladies' tee, and the ladies' tee was, like, 50 yards further ahead. And I almost hit her. I hit this five iron so fat, and it went in the water, but only just. And I was like, that's embarrassing, you know, to hit a shot that bad. But that was mainly because I'd, I'd got there quite late, you know, Tuesday night, and I didn't feel great on the Wednesday, and... But I, but I did know my game was in good shape. And then as the round went on, I started to play better and better and better. And the similarities in the two wins is quite incredible because the two courses, Madrid and Russia, wide fairways, really complex greens where they could put really tricky pins in. Um, and and they're just very similar courses, a lot of water. And, and I just remember arriving that week and thinking, God, this feels just like Spain. You know, it feels like a similar golf course. And I missed four greens that week in regulation. So it was very, very similar. 
like the stars aligned again for some reason. And I think the most disappointing thing about that week, although it wasn't disappointing, was to go on to the next week in Holland and play even better and not win that tournament. That that was very disappointing because if I'd have putted half decent the week after in Holland, I'd have won that by 10. I'd have finished 30 under par. That's how well I was playing at that particular time. I'm going to bring you back to Russia. Do you remember your last round? I do, yeah. Do you remember who you were playing with? Uh, I was playing with Tano Goya. I remember that. Um, and Craig Lee, would it be? Could, yeah. Was yeah. it uh, on the 18th? Did you know you had a lead? I did, yeah. Par five, water. So, so I'm bringing it up. <laughs> Very, but the water was on the other side this time. Was it? Yeah. What did you take off the tee? A driver. Smashed it down the right. Big wide open fairway, but just couldn't go left. So I did the right thing. And then I hit a six iron right again, well away from the water. And I couldn't have left myself a worse yardage because I had like 122 yards, which I can't quite get my 52 that far. Even with adrenaline, I'm struggling. And um, so I knew it was a fiddly wedge. It was just a chip wedge. And I'm thinking, I don't want to smash this with the adrenaline. So pulled it a little bit. Mr. Green just left. But for some reason, I'd, I'd, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but at not any point during that round did I feel nervous or even think about the win. It was a, a really weird day. I remember having a bit of a cold. Um, and, and I just remember st standing over that chip on the last and thinking, I'm going to chip this in. It was a totally different feeling. To, and I think it's because I'd won and got over the line, that's, that made the difference and chipped in on 17 as well. Which, um, you just zoned in then? I think I was. I think I was, yeah. I think, um, yeah, I, was, I, was so, I, I just remember being so relaxed. It was a di totally different feeling, a totally different feeling. And, and I think at that point I knew that I'd got my playing rights back for the year after. A lot of things went with that. So I knew that playing that last time, even if I don't get this up and down, I've got full card next year. There was there was a lot, lot of pressure taken off me, you know. Sounds like you're just thinking all the good things, wouldn't you? I kind of was, really, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I had a good chip. I had a three-footer there, and the difference there is I didn't shut my eyes. I just rolled it in. No, I've got a cracker for you now. You've yeah. called my jumper. Do you know what you were wearing? Because <laughs> I've seen an I interview, do, yeah. and I, was, I can't stop laughing. It was it's orange, the worst interview. It? Even you were stood there. With the handshake. Getting wet through. Yeah. Looks like you had this interview way after you finished. Oh, do you remember it? I, I, I remember interviews and, yeah. I think it, was, it might else. have been a Russian or a Chineseman man interviewing you and the questions you were asking are a belt. It makes us look good. Honestly. Yeah, I'm going to show you now. So when you're watching this back, this is what he dealt with. <laughs> but I thought you were supposed to buy EasyJet when I was looking at you. Cool dude like you. Oh, yeah. Probably. Do you know what you had on now then? It was, yeah, it was like a Hugo Boss, like orange <laughs> top, wasn't it? Yeah. I love, I love that. I've still got that. So I've actually kept the outfits that I've worn in the final rounds. When you I've could worn. pull that off, though. Yeah, it's, you it's, couldn't. It's a you lovely could. outfit, yeah. All right, John. You could pull that. it off. But they, they, yeah, I remember getting really upset in the interview after the round because my wife's dad was really poorly, so it was it was more for him. Right. And, it, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, you get into a situation, you don't realise how much raw emotion there is in there until somebody asks you a question about something like that, and then you, it's just yeah. so hard. It chokes you up, doesn't it? So, yeah. That year you won 800,000 euros. Good year. Yeah, decent year. Yeah, yeah, good solid year. So casual questions now. So you're starting to learn more. You've won. You've... Is the tournaments or courses, you'll think, forget that. I know you've mentioned Dubai, but you went there like, yeah, forget your game. But is it actually courses and tournaments? 
that's not for me. I'm not going to do well there. I'm just giving that a wide berth. I don't, I don't think I've given any the wide berth. I, do you know, the one course I never liked was the Johnny Walker course in the Glen Eagles. Right. And, and it wasn't the layout of the golf course. It was the greens that time of year. We always used to play it late in the year and the power grass was there. And, you, you know, you could stand over a two-foot putt, put a perfect stroke in it and miss, you know. So I always felt like the winners of that tournament were always great ball strikers that week. And one year I played with Emmanuel Canonica. Do you remember him? He was an unbelievable ball striker, ripped it. And he won that year, and he was a terrible putter. So, and because I was always quite a good putter in in my head, um, I always felt like I needed half decent greens to be able to to perform well in a week. So that was one week that I I did play it because it was close and I'd drive up, but I never played well there. So, yeah. two thousand and nineteen, you were voted by a national club golfer the unluckiest unluckiest golfer of the year. Don't know why. Do you know why? That just pops up on the internet. I thought, right, I'm going to ask. <laughs> okay, so to many, it's a, it's an interesting question. This because um, it's it's a little bit political as well in the sense that I got to the end of that year. I played all the Rolex events, had a full card, and and I remember missing I think four Rolex events by one shot, and I'd made a, a double bogey on the last hole in Italy to miss that cut by a shot. Although it sounds like a horrendous double bogey, like what's he done? Hooked it off the tee, hit a tree, went so far left, it was dead. And anyway, the rest is history. Missed the cut by a shot. Now, if I'd have made that cut, I would have kept my card. It was that simple because the money's so big in them events that I would have made 20 grand minimum and I would have kept my card. So then it goes to France the week after. Obviously still upset. Played pretty well, finished 28th, 30th, something like that. So I picked up about 10 or 12,000, um, but again, knew it wasn't enough. So I'm going to Portugal right on the number and missed the cut. So, and it, it was a tough week for me because my mum, that week of Portugal, just before then, had been diagnosed with having Alzheimer's. She'd come out to that event and I'd, I'd actually kind of seen it for the first time, if you know what I mean, so with my dad. So it was quite an emotional week. And um, and I remember, I'm not saying it affected my game that week, but I was kind of like looking after my mum and dad that week as well on top of that, on top of the pressures of trying to keep my card. And it didn't work out, it's as simple as. So So I just, I looked back at my stats that year and my stroke average was like 70.4 or something. It was incredible. It was almost the same as Robert McIntyre's who had finished sort of ninth, you know, on the order of merit. Then I looked back and I thought, how many missed cuts have, have I missed by one. I look back in Portugal, I missed the cut by three shots in Portugal, I think it was. The other nine cuts I'd missed that year were all by one shot. Every single one and four of them were Rolex events. So I'm looking back at that year thinking, I've actually played some great golf here. I've been a little bit unlucky. And the US Open, I missed by a shot. Um, hit a lovely shot off the last hole on the 18th. The 260 marker, downwind with a three wood. Then it lands edge of the fairway, kicks left, falls down into the rocks, makes seven, missed the cut by a shot. Caddy the week before, I had to take a caddy for one week because my caddy couldn't do it. Gives me the wrong yardage on the last, fly the green, double bogey, miss the cut by a shot. So I'm looking back at that year thinking, it was a really unlucky year. So the letter I wrote to Keith Pelly was, listen, it's been a really tough year for many reasons, you know, and unfortunately my dad had cancer at the time as well. I didn't tell you that one, but... So I wrote him this letter explaining my whole situation. Not the cancer and the Alzheimer's. That was something I wanted to keep to myself, but the fact I've been so unlucky in losing this card and asking, would would he be kind enough to 
give me a few invites next year, knowing that I'd probably get 15 starts anyway. And I didn't even get a reply. And that, that's the frustrating thing about it. Is Who was it you sent the letter to? Keith Pelly. So I sent it to the head of the European tour, and it took me days to write that letter because I'd, I let my brother read it, my wife read it, and, and I had to do it right. It had to be the right letter. And to not get a reply was really, really frustrating. And then obviously we, we then go into the following year, um, which was COVID year, and that was a really, really tricky year because I, I knew at that point even if I asked for an invite, I'm not getting it because, you know, guys are struggling to play any tournament. So the fact they put on a schedule that year and I managed to play 10 or 11 events was was a miracle, really. Um, but then, unfortunately, because they had Challenge Tour players coming through, because they still played a schedule that year, the back end, they all jumped in front of me. And then, you know, you'd get guys saying, that, well, I've got a mental illness. They jumped in front. So my category was getting lower and lower and lower. So then when I got into... 2021, my category had dropped so much that I only played 10 events in a fuller schedule, not playing the bigger events. And then by this year, 2022, it was, it, I was basically playing nothing. You know, I'd get into some of the smaller events. I think I managed to play about 11 or 12 in the end, um, but it's just not enough, you know, and, and you've got a family and you've got everything else to worry about. And, and you know, there, there are points, this, there are times this year where I just thought, do I just pack in and get on with it? Because the tour, the, all they're bothered about is getting the big players in and that's it, you know, and, and the further you are away from the top, the less they kind of worry about you. So it's tricky. It's tricky because they've done a lot for me, the tour, and, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I, I hate the tour because of that. Um, I don't hate the tour at all, sorry. Um, but it's more the fact that when you I really needed going? help, yeah. I never got it. So that was it. Back in your tour, you, uh, you create you? Back on your career, you mentioned US Open. Where was that at? Uh, Pebble Beach, oh. 2019. Spectacular. Yeah. Now my favourite golf course on the planet because all the hype and everything that goes around it, it you know, you, you just don't expect it to be that good. You know, you play Leopard Creek, you play Royal Birkdale, which fortunately is on my doorstep, and they're, they're great golf courses. But there's just something special about that place. You know, there, there's one or two bland holes on it, but in the US Open, they don't feel bland because they're still tricky. But, you know, once you walk down that fourth fairway and you look to the right, then that's where it starts. And it is just spectacular, incredible place. Do you remember who you played with? Um, I played with, oh, what was his name now? Have you got the names there? No, I'll be X. No, I'm asking you. No, no. <laughs> No, he was doing really well. He, he actually finished about 15th in the tournament as well. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of his name now. Well, obviously, I played with two guys. Um, I will delete that question. Do, do you know, do you know the, the, funny, the funny thing about it is you should know this, shouldn't you? you know, you're probably um, taking your scenery, aren't you? Yeah, you probably are, yeah. yeah. And everything else that's going on as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it was a, I mean, it's a huge event, isn't it? So. I know. But like Brit British Open... 2012, yeah. I remember playing with Hunter Mayhan in the third round, and then last round, I can't remember again. You know, it's, it's weird, isn't it? You know, you, you remember, like, the big stars, because he was six in the world at the time, but then everyone else can't remember. Honestly, can't remember. Yeah, but I'd, you still had a good time, that's the main I thing. I did, I did indeed. Well, I think you've answered my question. Best golf course ever played? Yeah, it has to be Pebble Beach. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, when you play it in a US Open and it's in that sort of condition, that obviously helps as well. But it was spectacular. I mean, the crowds for a US Open, 
remember the first one I played was at Olympic Club in 2012. And I remember getting there, you get your own car and everything else. And that, that, that week, it was not a tough course, but tricked up. I think one over par won it. It was, it was so hard. And um, I remember thinking, God, the crowds here are just a joke. They're incredible. I mean, they've had a few beers, a lot of them, but it was amazing. And then I, I also played the British Open that year at Royal Lytham and made the cut and, you know, actually played okay there. But I remember thinking, this feels like a normal tour event now in comparison to that because the noise in a US Open is just different. You know, Off the charts. It's probably a little bit over the top in some ways, yeah. you know. I mean, I played with Westwood at Oakmont in, I think, 2015. And, um, and I just remember him getting so much stick off the crowd. And I'm Did he actually thinking, get the stick? Like a footballer's oh, stick? It was like, you know, I think he was going through his divorce at the time and all this stuff, and the stuff the crowd is shouting. You're like, how can this guy ever win? I mean, he never spoke to me all the way around because he, he, he was trying to stay in this bubble. You know, luckily we had Louis Eustausen with us as well, who's a really nice fella, so I was chatting to him a lot. But, um, but he played, I mean, shot 67 that day. It was one of the best rounds of golf I've ever seen. So the crowd didn't get to him, luckily. You said there, you turn up, you get your car, US Open. Was it? You arrive at the airport, get taken to the golf course, you sign in, pick your car up, and that's no, it. No, no, the, the car is there at the airport, yeah. Waiting so you for literally you. walk out of arrivals and there you go. There's, There's a key. Lexus for the week. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Look after you, don't they? <laughs> I mean, that's the one thing in America. Yeah. Whatever they put on is top notch. I, th I think you're right. I think that's where the DP tour just struggles a bit. Like they have the, the bigger events, the Rolex events, and they do feel a little bit special. But to put something into perspective, you would say that like, I've managed to get into the Italian Open. It's like, a, I was a late reserve and I got in and, um, and I struggled to find a hotel. They had one room left. My caddy couldn't find anywhere. So we had to stay in a really expensive hotel one night and then found an Airbnb for the rest of the week, which was five miles away. And then you get Rory and Fitzpatrick and guys like that playing in it because they want to see the course for the Ryder Cup. And they've got these big stretched Mercedes vans with all the team in staying at the best hotel in Rome. And don't get me wrong, it's the right thing to do because you've got to look after them. But everybody else was struggling. Like, we couldn't even get cars back to the hotel and it was just crazy. I would, well, again, I would have thought they would have blocked rooms off, they would have organised rooms for everybody coming in. Well, well I, th I think they did to an extent, but because I got in so late... I, I just think, you know, that I, I would just presume that if a, if a guy's booked a room and he's a reserve, like, so, sorry, if a guy's booked a room and he's in the tournament already and then he decides to withdraw and then you, you get in as a reserve, you just take his room. But it, it never seems to happen like that for some reason. And See, these are the things you would never think about, yeah? Because you're thinking yeah. about everything sorted for you. You just walk in, basically carry your clubs walk onto the tee and that's it. I think so. I, th I think from a player's relations point of view, the guys are, are brilliant. You know, Miles Sunnicliffe and Paolo and, you know, that team is, is absolutely brilliant, but they are put there to look after the big players, simple as. And, and I'm not saying they don't look after us, but that's where the tour, I think, could improve in looking after everybody the same or making everybody feel the same. Because I think certainly when you get to bigger events, you just feel like a number and that's it. You know, you just to look after the top, top players. The top, top, top players, that's what it's all about, the top, top players. That's what it feels like, more so than it used to, no question. Best player you played with? Um, I'd probably say, you know, because he, he is a friend as well, and we've had the same coach. Tommy Fleetwood is is pretty special. When he's on, he's he's very very good. And what I, what I love most about Tommy's game is it's got a blend of 
the modern day power and all that sort of so he is a strong lad anyway but he's also got a bit of flair like you know old school so he's got he's got a mix of like the Hogan-esque type thing and and the modern day swing and I, I do like that was you look at guys like John Rahm and you know guys that just smash it and you know hit it as hard as they can whereas Tommy's just got he has a little bit more about his game and I've, I've played like nine holes with him in practice rounds where he's not missed a shot and He's, he's just a really special golfer, you know, and I think if, you know, people go on about his putting, his putting's improved massively, and I do think he's going to have a spell soon where he'll nick a major and start winning more, and he's just too good, you know, played a lot of golf. He seems also great. just a normal, down-to-earth he's, guy. He's a really, really nice lad, you know, he's, um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's quite, a, like, when he comes into the pro shop here at Formby Hall, He's just such a pleasant, lovely lad, you know, and he's got a great team around him now to do everything for him, and, and he goes out there and plays golf, and I think that's why he's become such a great player. You can see that in him. You know, he, he's a bit more relaxed with it all. So his team take all the pressure off him, really, and let I him go and do what he's do. good at. It's, it's what he needed, you know, because he is a nice lad, and he's he's quite, he's, he's a softie at heart, and, he you know, he, he's a, he's a, he is a lovely lad, and I think he needs people to cushion him a little bit to let him go and play his golf, and... I've never seen a guy work as hard as him. He's, he's ridiculous, you know, proper work ethic. Funniest player on tour? Jamie Donaldson, 100%, by an absolute country mile as well. Yeah. He's the funniest lad you'll ever meet. Does he like lighting up a room when he comes in, if you know him? You, you, you just wonder, you always think, imagine if you could be that funny and still actually play good golf, and he, he manages to do it. He's just an incredible human being, Jamie. You know, he's, uh, he is just very, very funny. You know, until you've spent time with him, you don't realise how funny he is. I've never never met him, but I remember now I was carrying for Dan at Denmark. You know when they had that beer tent? I don't know if you played that year. Oh, or one the, of the olds, you had walk through. <laughs> yeah, in Denmark, yeah. He can't do all the Michael Jackson moves, He was, he? yeah, yeah. And he's, you know, and that to him is pretty normal, really, you know. But he's just, he's just brilliant, you know. And, and I remember, like, we played there this year. And, uh, and it was like a smaller... Um, like little, you walk through a little club to get to the 16th tee, and there were, there were these pictures of him on the wall, you know, with the, with the moves, and he's just he's just very very funny. He, but the thing with Jamie is he, he he can be serious when it comes to golf. He's very serious, and he's he's sometimes quite tricky to caddy for because he he wants to do so well. But you get him away from the golf course, and he just wants to entertain. He wants to make people happy. Do you know what I mean? It's the, there is a difference there. He's not. Um, you know, he's just not one of these guys that will sit at a table and be boring all night. He just wants to make people happy and laugh. I think they call him, he's a lad's lad. He's a proper lad's lad. You've played plenty pro-ams. Who's the best sportsman, best sportswoman you've played with? I'd, I'd probably say Johan Cruyff. I, I think I played with him twice in a pro-am in Italy, uh, which we played every year. We used to call it the Breitling Pro-am because the, the pro golfers that played in it got a nice free watch for playing in it. And it was, it was a fabulous event. 
but you know for what he did for football and just chatting to him and you know when guys retired he set up this business which helped them out and got them into new jobs you know when when they finally started you know practicing playing uh, but as a person i mean i just couldn't believe that how a guy this famous and this successful could be so normal and you know, and, and he wanted to play with me in the Dunhill Links. I remember him requesting to play with me because he said, "Oh, you're a lovely fellow. You know, I'd like to play with you in that." And you just you, you didn't realise how important he was. And then when he when he became ill, it actually it shook me up a little bit because I'm like, he's gone way too early, you know. And it and it was it was quite a, a sad time at that particular time. But um, but yeah, he's he's got to be the most famous. I played with Del Piero in that and Nedved and other players, but he was the one I think that. An absolute icon. Oh, huge, incredible. Proves one thing with golf, a leveller, isn't it? It's a proper leveller, you know, when, when you have Johan Cruyff go, wow, what a shot, you know, you just think, <laughs> you know. Um, but just, yeah, a- absolute leveller. And that's what I love about the sport. You can play off 18 and you can still be competitive, you know. Definitely. I, I might only give you 18 shots, but... We, we were chatting earlier on about that in a similar vein where... You know, we said a team sport, obviously you've got, if it's football, you've got 10 other players in the team, but mm. golf, it's down to you. You know, you've, you're the one that's got to look yourself in the mirror, you're the one that makes the decisions, and there's nobody else to fall back on. So mentally, mm. you've got to be really strong. Yeah, big time, yeah. I think um, I think you do. I think it's a, it's probably the most individual sport of all the sports, you know, and the, and the people you employ, you've got to remember, a lot of the time, they're not going to be your friends, you know, they're, they're there to do a job and... And there's a fine line between that as well, which you've got to be careful with. And, you know, I've, I've always said to guys, you go out on tour, you're very lucky if you make a really good friend on tour because they actually want to beat you every single week, you know. I mean, I, I roomed with David Lynn, who was a real character on tour for many years. I want him on. Hey, you've got to get him on. I want him That's on. fabulous. Seen him on Twitter. He's absolutely hilarious. A really good pal. But I made a good friend, David Lynn. We've not seen each other much since he stopped playing because he lives quite a distance away. But... You know, to have a friend like that for that long period was really nice. But then when he packed in and retired, I felt like I'd lost a leg or, you know, it was like, what do I do now? I've got to try and mix with other people. So at that point, although people said I was very friendly and I was a nice guy and everything else, which I'm, I'll be nice to everybody unless they upset me in some way. So the tour itself is a very friendly place. This is the only way I can describe it. It's a, it's an extremely friendly place where everybody will chat to you. Everybody obviously wants to beat you, but the minute you walk away from the tour and say, right, that's it, I'm packing in, there's a very good chance you'll never speak to anybody ever again. And You've spent nearly 20 years with all these people. That is the way it is. I might as well scribble this question out, best friend on tour, since David Lind has put, is there anyone? Since David Lee, I mean, you know, guys like Matthew Baldwin's a nice, nice lad. He's from Southport. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads. I mean, the guys that I've always really found decent are guys like Donaldson, Stevie Gallagher. I've always got a lot of time for him. He's a lovely fella, lovely family. Um, yeah, I mean, Richard McAvoy, another nice lad. Um, tends to be... He's a nice lad, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, you know, he's just not got a bad bone in his body, you know. And, um you know, he's, he's had his ups and downs on tour. And when he won that tournament in Germany, I was probably the most happy I've been for anybody when he won that. Because I just thought, that is not a course that Richard McAvoy wins on. And he won. And he beat DeChambeau down the stretch, which was even better. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I mean, again, not many. Mainly just acquaintances on tour and, and guys that you speak to. And, and I try to get on with everybody. That's my, my goal is to get on with everybody. I don't want to upset anybody and... 
And if I can do that, then, you know, I know that I'm an okay person and that's it. That's all I'm bothered about. So 19-year career, it's not finished yet, but if you could go back and have one shot again, what would it be, Lee? I would probably say it wouldn't be Pebble Beach 2009. Well, it, it kind of would in a way because I'd have got a full card if that had gone over the water. But I, I look back and think the drive I hit in, in Holland the week after I won in Russia, um, it, it was really unlike. I hit a perfect drive, but it ended up in like this shrubby line. I couldn't get it on the green and then ended up having a six foot to get in the playoff and, and missed it. So I wouldn't even say the six foot put because I know that if that ball had finished on the fairway, I'd have had a sandwich in and had a chance to win or even get in a playoff. And, um, and that would have got me comfortably into the top 100 in the world. I think I'd have been like 75th. I mean, I got close anyway. I was probably around 100. Uh, but just to say that I've been 75th in the world as opposed to 100 is, is quite a big thing, really. So the drive... Day four, Holland. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a bad drive. That's the frustrating thing about it. It was, it was in my head, it was the right drive. But I, I could have hit it a bit harder, I remember that, and then I would have carried, you know, that. I, I, you know, I look back and think, yeah. There's me thinking that it? backhander, but it's not. That will forget your card. Yeah. That will for win a tournament, won't it? Yeah, well I, well, I think it's only because I look back and I think to myself, well, I'd, I managed to get my card straight back, so it was, it was a bit different. I know I had to go through tour school and everything else, but the, the fact that I did that, I think that grew me as a golfer in some ways. It made me a better golfer. But, you know, when you look at something like that, a, a, sec, well, a second win at... No, in fact, it had been a third win at that point. Of course it would, yeah. And to move up so high in the world rankings where you're now knocking on the door for top 50, I think the difference that would have made, possibly, in my career, it might have just elevated me to a, to a slightly better level. Everybody's got a favourite club. What's your go-to club in the bag? Um... Probably the, the club I practice most with is a pitching wedge. And the main reason being is because I've looked at stats and things and I, I hit a lot of shots from between 120 and 150. Um, so it's, it's pitching wedge 9-iron I practice the most. Um, I think my favourite club is probably a driver. And the main reason being is because it, I, I think nowadays it's easier to hit a driver than it is a three-wood. Um, I, I just think they're so forgiving, you know, drivers. And that's it, it disappoints me in a way because I can still play with the old equipment and I've even tried it and it's fine. Whereas a lot of the young kids now, they can't because they've never seen a head so small. But if you go on the range and hit chip drivers, 270, let's say, just soft little cuts, I guarantee you if you hit 50 of them as opposed to 50 hard three woods, your grouping will be better because it, you tow it, it comes off straight. And the three-wood, you start to lose a little bit of that, you know, what would you call it? Like the dispersion thing off the face, you know, because they've, they're a rounded face. And, if and the small, there's, there's less, isn't there? Well, there's less to go at as well. So I, I think people say, you know, Rory uses his three-wood a lot. And it's because he has to, because he hits his driver so far. He still hits his three-wood 300 yards. And, it, and there are some holes on the planet, a lot of holes for him, where you can't hit it over 300 yards because everything gets too tight there's a water hazard so he needs a three wood in the bag to put it in the right position whereas a guy like myself who averaged 307 yards which isn't sure last year I could still hit a little cut 280 which would be a, a cut three wood for him in theory so that's the only reason he uses three wood so much remember us when we were caddying for Tom Hillside you told us a great story of uh, John Daly yeah 
Yeah, John. Uh, so very fortunate because Tommy Fleetwood, uh, back in 2000, and I think it'd be about 17, 18. When, when was his first win in Abu Dhabi? Was Oof. it about 18 or 17? Not that good of a stat, so it's a false so name, really. John's was, given me. Yeah, so it was the, it was the week after. Uh, we played nine holes in a practice round. And, you know, Tommy had become friends with John, and I was very fortunate enough to go out with these two guys. And, again, because we had the same coach, it was it was quite handy, really. Um, and he invited us all out for dinner that night, you know. So I'm thinking he'll just invite Tommy out, but he invited coach, he invited me, and it was like, oh, wow. So he takes us to a, an unbelievable steakhouse, probably the best one in Dubai. And we're sat there in these big white chairs and the stories are flowing and... He just came out with some absolute beauties. Like I, I remember, remember asking him, "Is is it true that you you blew about two hundred million, you know, in, in casinos and you know just gambling?" And he said, oh, "It's probably closer to three, really." You know, it's just quite like funny, that. just like that. And then he'd come out with stories about his wives and thing, you know, because some of them were a bit mad, and and he had like addictions as well. Like he had huge addictions. You know, if he started to like M and M's, for example, he'd, he'd put ten packets in his bag and eat them on the way around and. So he had a very addictive personality. Uh, but one of the best stories he told me was he was at a casino. I can't remember where it was exactly, but he went in there and he got really drunk and anyway, got escorted out. And, and he, he, So he didn't go back the following year because he was a little bit worried that he'd done something wrong. So anyway, eventually he goes back to this casino. He walks, he walks through the doors and the security are on him straight away. So he's thinking, I must have done something really bad here. And he said... Uh, John, welcome back. You know, it's really nice to have you back here. And he says, all oh, right, okay, what's what's going on here? And he just said, well, you know, you left nearly two million with us last time and we wondered, you know, were you ever going to come back to spend it? So he'd actually won all this money in this casino. I mean, I might have got the numbers wrong, I don't know, but it was a lot of money, I remember that. And, and they, they escorted him into the back room so he could play, you know, his blackjack or whatever he played at the time. And... So, yeah, so there's him thinking he's done something wrong and he's worried about going back in. And he's, he's got, got a couple of bills sitting there waiting on him. Yeah, he didn't have a clue. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Probably but gave him it back that night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, again, um, I think one of my, one of my um, sort of ex-caddies, uh, a guy called Magic, who's a very funny character, which I, I think he caddies for Ross McGowan at the moment, and a lovely We've fella. got Ross on in February. Have you got Ross on in February? Yeah. Oh, he's a nice fella, Ross, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so Magic caddied for John Daly in one event. I think it was in Germany. And he said, you know, I'm in the room. And he had a penthouse suite, so I had two bedrooms. And he's let me stay in this room. And one night he just said, listen, I'm a bit tired tonight. Can we, uh, can we get some room service? He's like, oh, yeah, great, you know. So he gets on the phone. And he goes, can I have a lasagna, chips, a uh, couple of pizzas, you know. He's ordering all this food. And then he said, and I'll have uh, nine Diet Cokes as well, please. Because obviously he had an addiction for Diet Coke at the time. And then he turns around to Magic and he says, Magic, what would you like? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Magic just went, was that, was that just for you? And he says, yeah, yeah, what would you like? And he says, well, I'll have a Diet Coke too and uh, lasagna. I'll have uh, lasagna and uh, 11 Diet Cokes, please. And then puts, puts the phone down, you know. And he said he's on the, on the way to the course the next day, stops at a garage and goes, I'm going to get some sweets for the bag. And he comes back with a carrier bag full of pick-a-mix. He spent like over 100 quid on pick-a-mix in a garage, you know. And this is what he was like, just a very funny fella, but really nice guy to speak to. Sounds it. Proper character. Yeah, proper, proper.
So, last two years, it's not been great for you. What's the future hold now for Lee Slattery? What's the plans this year? Well, I, th I think, yeah, I think, go, you know, the last two years, it's been more about just not playing enough. I think when you've had, you know, so many years out on the tour where you've played minimum 25 events every single, every single season, playing in the bigger events where, you know, the money's bigger and, you know, I, I felt like I played quite well last year. I made most of the cuts. I played, played well when I uh, with you, definitely. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I, you know, I finished eleventh in one of my local events at Hillside, thirteenth in Czech Republic, and um, so there was some really good golf in there. You know, my stroke average was good again; it was very consistent, but just not enough tournaments. And you know, it's it's frustrating more than anything else because I'm so hungry to play, and every day I'm in the gym, three four hours, just stretching, keeping my body fit, and always trying to find new ways of improving um, but you always you almost feel like you're going insane because you're doing so much work and then you've got nothing to play in and you're like I want something to play and I'm so hungry to play and there's, there's what have you got to do then Lee what's the steps well, it, I've, I've got it I mean I've had no choice I didn't really want to do this but I've got to go to Asian Tour School because it's it's a last chance saloon type thing so I'm going to go out there in January and try and get a card um, out there um, and then if that doesn't happen then I've, I've probably got to look elsewhere. I don't think I'll have much of a choice, really. Um, I have a challenge tour ranking for next year. Um, you know, I, I got quite excited when the tour sent an email through recently saying, would you like to join this? It was, wasn't a legends category. It was like a past winners category. And, you know, and I thought, well, maybe they're doing something about past winners because there can't be that many now in the 40s that, you know, are still actually playing decent golf, like your Gallagher's and myself and Robert Rock. I know Robert Rock's retired this year. And it's like the tours made it really, really hard for the older guys, the guys in the 40s. And they've literally all lost the card this year. It's incredible. Um, but they, again, they're, they're more about the young guys coming through and that's where it's changed a lot. So, um, so I think I always said I'd retire when the game retires me. And it feels like it's getting a bit closer to that. But unfortunately, I'm still No, you've really got fire in that ballet, I can to, tell now. To play, yeah. So I work too hard. If you got on that tour, would the end goal obviously getting to 50, the Champions Tour, would you look at that? Well, well, that's that's the one thing. I mean, you know, I'm 44 now. Um, you know, it's six years away. Mm. And there's talk of them trying to reduce the age for the Seniors Tour. And I think that's where it's... it's. I, I just don't see... It's going to be hard to have a future, certainly in Europe or, you know, the DP World Tour for a Seniors Tour, mainly being because the average age is so young now on tour, probably 27, 28, something like that. So when I first went out there, it was probably mid-30s. So so you, the guys were still in the 40s and experience counted for everything. It wasn't as athletic a game as what it is now. So the guys went bombing it. It was about shot shaping and we played different courses. And, and so that's why it's not because the 40-odd-year-olds are worse golfers. We're actually probably better golfers but the courses we play and the way the game has changed has, has basically made us, you know, void, like non-void. Non you know, we, we can't, it's hard to compete with a guy that hits it 350 because the stats now prove that that is more important than holding every putt you hit, you know. So um, that's where the game has changed a lot. So, John, we've got a little thing we do, John's 15. We change the name every week for it, John, don't we? You do. <laughs> My rapid 15. Rapid, rapid 15, 15, right. Rory McIlroy or Tiger Woods? Tiger Woods, because he's a legend. The Open or the Masters? Open. 
Tea or coffee? Coffee. Favourite football team? Liverpool. St Andrews or Augusta? St Andrews. Favourite golfing holiday destination? Probably Spain. Some good memories. Favourite golf course played? Pebble Beach. Favourite golfer? Seffi. Got to be Seffi. Best tournament played in? British Open. First one. Ronaldo or Messi? Ronaldo. Like Ronaldo. Links or Parkland Golf? Links. Favourite club manufacturer? Titleist. How many holes in one? 14. What? Jeez. 14. <laughs> PGA or Live Golf? Tough one. 50 50. Is that, is that, am I allowed to say yeah, that? You can say anything you want. Yeah, not sure which way either are going at the minute. Ryder Cup or the Open? The Open. Good answers. <laughs> Good answers. Well, I am going to say, Lee, you've been absolutely brilliant. What we are do, we always put a little donation to charity. Do you have one of your choice? Ooh, uh, probably a local, the local hospice. Because Faye's mum, so my wife's mum, worked there throughout her whole career. She's recently retired, and I know how much any little bit of money makes such a big difference. Yeah. So. John, uh, every Monday, don't you? Keep your time do, up for Bolton Hospice. Yeah, it's lovely when you do it local, because it just means yeah. so much more, doesn't it? So. And the, you know, everything, like you said, means a lot. So. Yeah. yeah, it does. Thank you. Well, Mr Lee Slattery, we wish you best of luck next year, and... Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been brilliant, mate. Yeah, it's been great. No, good Thank luck going so forward. Much, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you're working as hard as you do. Keep it going. Never stop. Never stop. Keep it yeah. going. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. How fucking gold is that? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.